You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Thanks for joining me on this wonderful Tuesday or whatever day you're listening. It means a lot to me that you're listening to the podcast. If you like this one, if you're here for Heather Langenkamp, I urge you to uh, support the podcast if you like it so much. And if you like the interview, subscribe, write a review. And uh, also, if you want to join Patreon, um, patreon.com slash inside of you really supports the podcast. My patrons are a blessing. Ryan, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Of it was, me. It was good. Oh, you're not going to interview oh, me? Oh, you're interview you. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, oh. Ryan. Oh. Was I, I, I bet there'd be a lot of patrons or people who Was want, I brought here under false pretenses? Maybe we could do an interview with Ryan for the patron account. <laughs> <laughs> just do a quick 10 minutes. Yeah, maybe. I think that would be fun. Uh, just throwing at you, um, you could follow us at Inside of You Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at Inside of You Pod on the Twitter. It really helps. Write a review. It helps tremendously for the podcast. Um, you can go to my Instagram at the Michael Rosenbaum, the link tree, and it has cameo where I'm going for cons, all that stuff. My live podcast, which inside of you live inside of you with Michael Rosenbaum live podcast is going to be at the Regent theater, October 11th at 8 PM. I think there's still tickets left meet and greet tickets with me and my guest, Zach Levi. It's going to be a fun festive night. A lot of my friends are going to be there. I'm going to be there. I hope you come support me. It means a lot. It's my first live show. So if I like it. It goes well. Maybe I'll do more. Right, Ryan? We'll go on the road, man. <laughs> I'm going to be on the road. I've been everywhere, man. Get a tour bus? Yeah, get a tour bus. Inside of you with Michael Rosenbaum tour bus. <laughs> People like, get lost. Just drive um, through Amarillo. Yeah. <laughs> drive through Amarillo. Uh, and in the Inside of You online store, by the way, tons of great new merch. And the Talkville Pod merch, talk, uh, Talkville Podcast, um, that... If you want to go for merch, uh, we just right now have a brand new piece of art from the great May Charter. She did our last piece of art. 55 prints made, signed by me and Tom. Once they're gone, they're gone. So you might want to jump on there at talkvillepodcast.com and tons of cool stuff inside of you online. Um, my guest today is someone that I have watched for many years, and she's an icon, and she was brilliant on this podcast very open and wonderful forthcoming and just just solid i think you're really going to join this i mean nightmare in elm street where's my poster it there is, it is right there it is up signed there. by heather langenkamp and wes craven cool can't beat it the only thing that's missing is fred krueger did he not no he didn't i haven't had him sign it hmm. he, he was a zoom interview at that oh, time that's right i'm gonna have him come in yeah you should i should that'd be fun yeah but uh, she's way more than Nancy. She has uh, got a pretty spectacular story and life and, and, and things to share. So I hope you really enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get inside of Heather Langenkamp. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. Hey folks, wanted to highlight something important before today's episode. In case you weren't aware, myself and many of the guests are on strike alongside SAG, AFTRA, and WGA. Today's episode and any we air before the strike ends were recorded before it began. So this is just a heads up in relation to some for the topics we may discuss. If you want more info on the strike, visit SAG After Strike. Dot org. Now let's get into it. I've had Inez for 20 years. 30 years. You know what? 
Stop upping me. I want to up you on each on everything. Um, I've worked with Wes Craven three times. I like how you start with that. That's perfect. <laughs> three times. Well, I mean, jump into that. Well, first of all, I met you at Mike Flanagan, name dropper. Mike Flanagan, who's an amazing director, writer, creator. Who is that again? Mike yeah, Flanagan? Mike, Mike Flanagan. Um, <laughs> He's really good at karaoke. Haunting of Hill House, Midnight Club, which you were, you had a big role in Midnight Club. Big role. I mean, first of all, we met at a karaoke party. And I was just kind of, when I get around karaoke, I get kind of, you know, you, you were One watching. One track mind. I'm sure you and your husband were like, who is this guy? Admit well, you're it. so good at it that we really appreciate when people who are good at karaoke stand up so the people who are bad at karaoke can kind of relax in the background. Yeah, it's kind of like, I want everybody to have fun. So it's important for everybody to sing. Who, who, the other guy was there, the big star, what's his name from Breaking Bad? Aaron. Aaron Paul. Yes. Well, and he was he was petrified to sing, and he got up, and I made him sing, and he, and he it was great. I know my husband and I sang um, "Baby, It's Cold Outside," oh, which is yeah. a really hard song, and I wish we had known what a tough song it was because it has a lot of syncopation. It's a lot of like trade off <laughs> of the lyrics, and you don't know on the karaoke like which one is the male lyric, which one is the female lyric, and yeah. so we switched it which we thought was really cool. <laughs> it was, but you know what? I, <laughs> I do that with karaoke too. Like I will, I think people are like, oh my God, I love this song. And then once they start singing it, they're like, oh boy, I don't have that range. Yeah. I can't. I don't know. They haven't practiced. And uh... like Africa. Gonna take a while to away from you. I'm like, oh my <laughs> God. A, anybody who sings those songs, you've got to have practiced at least a couple of times at home. Yeah. You seem like you have a really good marriage. Like you guys are just like two peas in a pod. I mean, marriage is, is a hard thing. I mean, it's it's almost like a horror movie in lots of ways. <laughs> you get, you know, you're working through like lots of things all the time. So I attribute my long lasting marriage to both of us being, um, we're just really patient. Like when things aren't going great or we have... You know, we, we've had loss in our lives that was really tough. And we kind of think we have this football and everyone's allowed to kind of just pass the football off, you know, and then that person takes all the responsibility for a while and then they pass it back to you and then you take over and, and you're just willing to, you know, you're just willing to pick up the pieces when they all fall apart. But you're always knowing at the end of the day that where you're going, nowhere, you're going to stay right there. And if you just commit to that, it's actually... It's kind of easy. Like, once you just say there's no other options out there, I mean, and you the, cut off all the options, then, you know, you're really excited to be there. Well, my sister, she had options. She's been married four times and divorced four <laughs> times. Uh, those options weren't always the best options. But it's like, you know, you got to think about that. I always say, like, if you're with someone, and then, you know, some people get attracted, especially actors and whatever, they get attracted to someone else. Well, it's just the attraction they're attracted. You know, that's the attraction, right. it's the physical. And so they're like, okay, this person has 20% of something that my partner doesn't have. But what about the other 80% that your partner has, which is right. the important shit? Right. You know what I mean? I never thought I'd say this, but <laughs> sex really isn't that important. It is, <laughs> but it really like... It because it's like you know it's like you have sex with someone for a year, five years, ten years, twenty years. Hey, it's more about connection and being there for each other, and you know, right? Tell I, me. I mean, I I think you're exactly right. I mean, I do think you know sex is really important, but damn it, 
Um, no, it is. But the thing I always, I mean, I don't even know. I can't even comment on it because I don't have sex with other people. But um, <laughs> that's good. I imagine that it's not all that different with other people. Like my, what I tell myself is, it isn't the most important part of your relationship, and. If you were really curious and you were going to take those chances, I just don't think it would be worth it. I don't think it would be like you'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so glad I experienced that because this 33 years of marriage or, you know, boy, I can just throw that out the window for this one little tiny adventure that's going to last, you know, what, maybe it would last a month or two. It would fall apart, you know. It always falls and apart. Then you always, I always think of my my daughter like, oh, how would I ever like how would I ever have another holiday if if I just wrecked everything, you know, if it was if it was just something I decided to throw out the window, because I I treasure all the things that come along with a long marriage, which is like great family events, and you you're seeing people from both sides of the family get together. You you get to know their family really well. They become your best friends. So I think that the longer you're married, the more <laughs> the chances of you staying are. You know, you know they're better. I mean, because you have so many benefits of it. Yeah. Are you a cancer? Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> I swear to God, I didn't look it up. I'm a cancer. I knew it. <clears throat> What's your birthday? It's probably June, uh, July 18th. July 17th. You're Is good. it really? You're good. On yeah. my mother's life, I did not look that up. Congratulations. It's not here. No, I do exhibit like, the all the all the cancerian. Yeah. You're I've, a hermit. I'm a hermit. I'm a right. nester. Like I love just knowing that I have a nest that I can always go to and I'd work on it a lot. And and I think family's like the most important thing in my life. Now I grew up with dysfunction. So Yeah, everybody did. And, well, now what sucks is if I wanna see my family, I have to go to Indiana to see my mom. I have mm -hmm. to go to New York to see my dad. I have to go there's all these put my brother in Rhode Island. Right. No one talks to anybody. And so I'm the single guy, so I am responsible for going to see them and going to, and it's it's hard. It's, it's hard. It's it's hard, and you you. I always, in a woman, if I'm dating someone, I definitely want someone who has a family, someone who is not, someone who's close with their family, that they're not like me, where it's all scattered and a lot of dysfunction. I, I look for some normalcy. I try to escape that sort of idea of chaos which mm -hmm. i grew up with but did you did you have chaos growing up you grew up in a I farm in of, tulsa well no so we had a i mean i had a really like white person privileged upbringing i i went to you know great school in tulsa a little elementary school i mean pretty much everyone was white and uh, i remember it was the vietnam war so we had some vietnamese kids come into the class not knowing any English at all. You know, they were just, they were refugees and they just plopped into our school. They were the only people not white in our school. How hard was it for them? So hard. And um, Tulsa was a very segregated town. It, it still is in many ways. So I grew up there, but my dad, who his family was like a third, he was a third generation Oklahoman. Um, he had a farm that was outside of town about an hour and when I was in, you know, elementary school and junior high, every weekend, that's just what we did. And so I didn't have a like a typical junior high experience because while my friends, they would all go roller skating or they did, you know, went out and had parties and went to movies. Like 
I just was out there and we were. So you didn't really, you weren't a social butterfly. I wasn't a social butterfly. And I really like was envious of my friends and all the, you know, just the normal life they got to lead. But my dad had us in the pickup truck early Saturday and we would go out and, you know, we would take care of the cows and we would, you know. (laughs) Do you know how to milk a cow? Um, We didn't have milk cows. We had, um, you know, beef cattle like um, Herefords and. So we didn't milk cows, but, you know, you're giving them shots and you're taking care of them and taking them to market. It's always really traumatic because I loved them all, you know, and then you'd have to take the bull or you'd have to take one of the cows to the market. Did you get emotional? Uh, Oh, I would cry. Big red. Did you say why? Why does this have to happen? Why do we have to eat cows? But I still was not a vegetarian at that time. Right. I knew that they were going to be sold for, you know, meat, but it didn't connect to me like I should not eat meat. And so. Right. Now I actually don't eat meat, but it's not, um, yeah, it's not as a religious thing for me or a a philosophical thing. I just feel like for the planet, it's really good not to eat meat. Right. It's amazing how like you got into the acting thing because I know your, your dad was like into oil and like worked with like, yeah, the no, Clinton so he, administration. Yeah. The, it's like, what the? Like, he must have said, what? You're going to be an actor? You're not going to embarrass this family. Totally. That was exactly his attitude. No. No, he, my dad was, um, he was a big fish in a little pond of Tulsa. And um, he was an attorney. And he, um, yeah, you know, and he had a lot of stature. And I think that um, he wanted something bigger. So he applied to work in the Carter administration. He had friends try to get him a job there and he worked in the Department of Energy. And so we moved to DC for four years and that was just such a mind expansive yeah thing. And I met so I mean so many interesting people at that time of my life. And at at that time I really thought I'm gonna be I'm gonna go into the Foreign Service. I'm gonna be in government. I'm gonna do something great, you know, uh you know, in the government because it's a fascinating place, you know, and everything that's being done is really interesting. So that's what I thought I was going to do. And then in that summer between senior year of high school and first year of college, I had gotten into Stanford. So I was like, I'm just going to relax in Tulsa and just like read a lot of books and get ready to go to college. And and then that's when Francis Ford Coppola was there making two films, The Outsiders and Rumblefish. And so I got I got to be an extra, and then I got my SAG card. And those things made me take a total left turn. Inside of You is brought to you by Rocket Money. I love Rocket Money. You know why? Because everyone should have Rocket Money because it just helps you save money. How many times do we have subscriptions that we don't even know we have anymore, and we're paying so much money? It's just throwing away money, Ryan. I I found one. You And you did it. You told I me. Found- I got Rocket Money. <laughs> Okay, I found one. It. I'm embarrassed to say how long it's been going on, but thank you for finding it. <laughs> My God, it was embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, because it's like you want to watch some show and you go, oh, I have to subscribe to this uh, this streaming dev- uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you, you start streaming the show, you watch it, you leave, and you forget after this trial period, it kicks in and it's they're charging terrible. you 10 bucks a month. It's, it is embarrassing. Ugh. You know, 75% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about. Before I started using Rocket Money, I thought I had, you know, like, oh, I have like five subscriptions. I could not believe it when they showed me I was paying for like four extra. Uh, 
between you know streaming advices and fitness apps, delivery services, it's never ending. And thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with the customer service for you. I like that. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash inside. That's rocketmoney.com slash inside. Rocketmoney.com slash inside. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know how many times I have to talk about this, but it's so important. If you're sitting there right now and you're stressed or you're anxious or you have a lot on your mind and you just bottle it up and you don't know what to do, it's going to come out and it's not going to come out in great ways all the time. Um, BetterHelp has helped me substantially. Ryan here has been using it for a while. And I, you know, don't you notice when you don't use BetterHelp? When you don't have therapy? Oh, the weeks where I miss a session? Of course, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's 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 like the more you talk about something, even if you don't think you have anything to talk about, things come up and it puts your mind at ease. And we all carry around different stressors, you know, big and small. And at times we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for all of us. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I think people think, oh, what if I don't like my therapist? If you don't, you switch them. It's that easy. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash inside today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash inside. But so and, you just like being on set, it just it just changed you. You're like, I mean, you were I just have- like, oh my God, this is incredible. I just want to do this. And you saw... You know, you saw Matt Dillon and C. Thomas Howell and Rob Lowe and Patrick Swayze. They're all, they're all, you know, living this life that you just can't believe that this is a, a job. You can't even believe people can make a living doing it. And and this was the time when, you know, teenagers like the whole movie industry was just geared to making movies about teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know, you had John Hughes and everyone just yeah. wanted to make movie about young people and i love that time it was a great time and we don't remember that like how the focus went really to the youth during the early 80s and i mean it's it's not really that way anymore Um, no and it was real think about it i didn't even think about that but you're talking about John Hughes and Francis Ford Coppola in these movies like Stand By Me that came out. Also, those kind of movies. Yeah, um, Breakfast Stand- Club, Breakfast you know. Club. Um, Rob Reiner directed Stand By Me. Yeah, but like these movies where it's coming of age, these you know real grounded stories with characters, and it seems like there's none of that, and it's all either superhero 
or uh, or what? Uh, um, I mean, no, I'm not saying know. it's bad. I'm just saying, well, for me, I just miss that. Yeah. I miss that sort of, it was nice to grow up with that and see you know, kids my age and like, oh my gosh, what, look what he's going well, through. Yeah, it was a coming of age, like rites of passage. It was, they were always a oh, River's Edge. Remember, yes. like, what a great movie. Like all these movies, we as teenagers were watching these other teenagers grapple with really hard Death things. And- I mean, you even had like even Blue Velvet, like they were young people and they were thrust into like crazy situations. And so that, time was such a good time to be in Hollywood as a young person because there was so many great projects always um around you yeah. know and and so the people you know 18 19 20 if you're in Hollywood in 1982 you just you're it's like a feast of incredible movies being made and um so I was like I want to be there I want to be part of that so I went to I went to college a freshman, you know, in my dorm. And I soon was like getting, you know, itchy fingers. Like, how can I get down to LA? And luckily the casting director for Rumblefish and Outsiders, Janet Hershenson, she said, come on down and I'll get you some auditions and we can see. And she helped me get an agent. And, and this is and, without like a lot of experience? This is just with my one little extra. And yeah. you had not really, you hadn't done a lot of acting. I mean, only high school acting, yeah, in my high school plays. But were you good? I mean, I I hope I was good. She she had faith in me. That's the thing is that mm. she had a lot of faith, and she was really encouraging. She let me stay at her house. Let, stay Gosh, on her couch. a casting director. Yeah. That's in, that, you never hear that, and not just unless it's a man yeah. wanting to sleep with you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was so lucky, and and so that relationship really led me to getting Nightmare on Elm Street and, um, you know, uh, several like movies of the week and things like that. TV shows and all this stuff. Like it all started and it really just, it happened quickly. It happened really quickly. I mean, things when you're young, things just, you know, if you're lucky. I was never the kind of person that was like leaving one job to go fly to the next one. It was always like six months, even a year between jobs. Unfortunately, I always felt like I was like never getting on that you know, the train of like super success. Um, and so like once I had that TV series, Just the Ten of Us, you know, you just think, oh, something's going to happen. But it, I always felt like, oh, there's like a roadblock or, oh, I, something's in the way. Like I'm not, it's not flowing, you know, and, and I often would get very demoralized and yeah. just think like, okay, if things don't, by my 25th birthday, <laughs> if I don't have another part, I'm just going to, you know, do something else. I'll go to graduate school or something. And then I'd always like get something. And, and but Wes Craven, you know, meeting him, I, literally like almost every time I was about to throw in the towel and quit, I always got a call from Wes and it would be like, I'm thinking of doing Nightmare on Elm Street part three and they've asked me to write the script. Would you be dream interested? Warriors. Yeah, Dream Warriors. I have an idea for you to be in it. And I'm, I was like, yeah, thank you, Wes. Thank you so much. And same thing happened with Wes Craven's new Nightmare. I was I just had a baby and I couldn't get an audition to save my life. I remember going out for, it was like technician number three for you know, a, a TV series about, you know, things that didn't even have names. Like I finally told my agent, if the part doesn't have a name, I don't want to even go, you know. I just don't, I don't get it because I remember watching Nightmare on Elm Street 
and your performance was so like I was just talking to Michael Bean, you know Michael Bean? Yeah. And I was talking to him and I was like, I remember certain actors, the movie stars, where their performances were so subtle and real and not trying and they just seemed like a real person. And when I watched you in Nightmare, it just was, you brought this ground, if it weren't for you <laughs> as the lead, I mean, Wes really knocked it out of the park because it was like, if you would have got some known actress or it could have been complete, but the fact that this is innocence, girl next door kind of, but real, like an actor, like I really felt like you weren't trying, you were just being. Mm. And a what a compliment, thank you. Well, I swear, yeah. I mean, that's, I think everyone thought that. I think that's why it still ranks as one of the best movies ever. I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the best ever. That's why it's right across from you and that's not intentional. <laughs> Uh, well, Wes, you know, wrote such a great script because I don't know how he had this ability, but he was probably 40 at the time, maybe, when he did Nightmare on Elm Street. But he just had this way of getting the lingo and the way that kids talk to each other. It wasn't perfect because there were some lines I remember we rolled our eyes like, oh, come on, Wes. Kids right. don't talk this way. But in general, there was this casual back and forth that was really, you know, great. That's why he was such a good writer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of his movies, you can, same with Dream Warriors, there's this casualness between the yeah. patients in the hospital that it's real. And, and I think that's why that movie, too, is so popular with kids. Because, I think that's the second best one of all. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. It really I mean, people is. People aren't trying to get out information. You're not trying. And so as an actor, you just, you know, I was as close to Nancy as I possibly could have been, you know. And, and, and I have a feeling Wes saw that in me and... He he's like, well, let's just match this girl who seems to be just like Nancy, and and we were very similar people. How many? Know. How many auditions did you have for that? Um, I think two. One with Wes. Yeah, one just the reading, and then one with Wes. I mean, they didn't have a budget, man. They didn't have any money, so I think that it was just like we're gonna we're gonna pick ten girls, and then Wes will come in and he'll pick the. The lead. It wasn't. Let's through. move on. Let's move on. You know, we're not going to belabor this. I remember it was only two weeks, like from the first audition to getting the part. But I remember. But my point was about saying how grounded you were and how subtle, and it just felt like a movie star. It felt like I just like I'm. I'm shocked that like the offers weren't flooding. I uh, yeah. I, I, I don't. I don't understand that at all. I do think that it wasn't a genre that people went to go see on their own if they weren't already fans of horror. I do think my the audience was you know, 16 to 24, I think all the money they made was from that age group, people across the country that wasn't uh, executives in the C-suite. I mean, they, like I would often be told to take it off my resume, like before I wow. went into parts. Yeah. They didn't want, it. there was just a big stigma still attached to being in a horror movie. And nobody can really understand it now because we've flipped a hundred percent, but, um, it wasn't something that my agents talked about. You know, they didn't want to let everybody know that this was. So, I mean, I went out for like killer clowns from outer space. Like I would have auditions for genre movies because they had seen it and liked it. So I did have a lot of more. Uh, right. In that genre world, movie. you were, but, I, I, but did you want to do that? I wanted to do anything, but you really I didn't, just wanted to act. But I didn't really want to take another horror movie part because I, I've always known ever since that none are ever as good. Like there's never no. as good a part as Nancy. It, it would just, it would be hard to do that. It'd be like, 
you know, having like this great meal with everything there and then you go and have a Taco Bell burrito. It's like, why do that? You know? Or it could be the second godfather. <laughs> which uh, some yeah. arguably will say is the better one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I would always, yeah, exactly. And if it was a Wes Craven, like we talked about with Cursed, like he he asked me to do a part in that, and of course I I said yes. But in in terms of being another final girl part or a very similar part in a kind of a similar genre movie, I never felt that that would have been an advantage. And I was, I now was you know, interested in doing all sorts of things. Did you ever deal with anxiety or depression while you were, you know, in your career? I mean, cause like, obviously, you know, we talk about on the podcast, but did you ever deal with a time where you were like all of a sudden getting anxious about things? You were like, you didn't know why you went to therapy. Did you have to deal with all that stuff or were you just old school? <sighs> kind of old school, but I do, I do recognize like when I'm having anxiety, I mean, I, I'm the kind of person that my heart starts to beat really, really fast, you know, and I can really feel it. Like, I almost think I can see my shirt, you know, moving with my heartbeat. But I find that those feelings are coming from, I mean, not so much about my career, much more about like, I'm like getting older. Time is, time is coming to an end. Like life doesn't last forever. Like those kinds of things will give me a sense of anxiety. Like, why am I not like, forging a stronger path forward with what I want to do. Like, those are the things that give me anxiety. So in the end, I always go back and think to myself, well, why aren't I doing, why aren't I making that hard phone call? Why, why aren't I calling this person that can help me? Or, and then I have to really, you know, figure that out. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Yeah, you know, they, they did a study or something where they asked all these people that were on their dying beds or whatever. They were old people that were just at the end of their life. And, and they said, what do you regret? And they're like, you know, I regret that I worked too hard. I regret that I cared too much. I regret that I was always trying to please everybody mm -hmm. else and not myself going my own way, doing what I wanted to do. And, you know, I think that's, that's so important to have other passions. But you found a passion that you probably didn't ever think you would get into, which was effects and makeup and all these amazing things, right? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. Like, I, I kind of think it goes back to the question of marriage that I realized that because my husband was on the road a lot when, you know, early in his earlier in his career. Oscar award winner. Yeah, he's won a couple Oscars. And, and he was always on the road in these really great locations like Austria or he'd be um, in New York for a few months. And, and and then he had this job to do Dawn of the Dead um, with Zack Snyder in Toronto. And um, I thought to myself, oh, my God, he's going to go on the road again and have these two kids. And uh, I'm going to just do this all again and be at home alone. And it's not going to be any fun. And then I said, why don't I just, like, find a job for myself 
in your office, like managing the budget or helping with the producers or being a liaison for you so that you can just do Dawn of the Dead, which is was super challenging when I mean, we had hundreds of zombies that oh, he was yeah. going to be making. And so we figured out, um, like, I will work in the office. I'll do all the ordering and I'll get all the employees and I'll do all of that stuff. And you just design zombies and do all that. <laughs> And so we did that. That was like two. In the year, that was like the year two thousand. And you go design zombies. You go design zombies. Had to be fast moving zombies, right? Yeah, the new yeah. style of zombie. And that zombie has to look like Burt Reynolds or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, so he, you know, having that division of labor at in his uh, makeup effects lab at that point in time, um, really helped him. And um, so I started learning everything I could about, you know, doing that job. And so we went up to Canada and I did it. And I probably didn't do a great job, but at least he could do a great job. And it wasn't that I just loved special effects makeup so much. It's just I just didn't want to be a part and have him every day going 15 hours, 16 hours being on the set and so not So you didn't really there. love it? I didn't really love it. I mean, I love watching him do it. I love all the people that he's working with. But in terms of like, oh my God, I just love that effect. No, I've never been that person. Really? I always thought yeah. maybe of what I've read, it was like, this is something you loved. It was your passion. But really, it was to be- To, to have a family like and be together. Wow. And so- That's sacrifice. I mean, that's also But like, I wasn't, nobody was calling me to, for work either. So um, it, was, it was a hard time when you're about, you know, gosh, you know, 38, an actress in L.A., you know, it's tumbleweed sometimes. It's just nothing is happening. So I wasn't losing out, and I was I was winning that whole time because we we all went to you know we all went to Vancouver. We lived right along the lake there in a beautiful neighborhood, and my kids went to school at the little elementary school, and I went to work every day with Dave, and it was. And we made this incredible movie. I mean, Dawn of the mm -hmm. Dead, Zack Snyder's Dawn of awesome. the Dead, I think is so good. It's amazing. Have it's you seen so it, Ryan? No. What? Oh my gosh. I didn't it's know all oh. the zombies. So any zombie that you see post 2002 or two or three, whenever we made that movie, are David Ander Anderson zombies. I mean, even I really feel like he created a kind that of look. a zombie with the, the deteriorated skin that looks like it's been kind of, you know, Three months of sort of the Walking Dead feel. Yeah, way before Walking Dead. Yeah. So, um, wow. I think that was about Zack Snyder wanting to create a, like an ultra, ultra realistic zombie, as if your skin had deteriorated for this entire period where you're just looking to eat brains, you know, and your skin is still decomposing at the same rate as it would as if you were you know, just laying on the ground, getting eaten by maggots. So that, so that kind of timeline. <laughs> Thanks for the description. It was very, very uh, thorough. But very, that's why uh, you'll see like elaborate. all the, the purple, the oozing pus, like all of that stuff. You know, my husband Dave has to look at so many references of the most disgusting things. And um, <laughs> do you love that? I like that part. Do you love horror? Um, I love, I love certain aspects of horror. I really do love this idea that people want to be as disgusting and gross as possible to kind of like go into where's the limit for that. And 
I do think we're reaching the limit, but maybe not. I mean, it seems like things are grosser than they've ever been. So I don't know where people are going to go. I think working for Ryan Murphy for six years on American Horror Story, like let me really watch in real time how just breaking the, tab- the taboos, yeah. breaking the taboos, pushing, 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 like what's the grossest thing we can do? <laughs> like how many like really vile actions can we show on TV and shock people with certain things. Like watching that process was really fascinating from like a societal point of view. And, you know, our society, I don't know if it's benefiting from it, but <laughs> yeah, they're almost like people numb love to it. it. They're numb to it, you know? And there's a certain kind of person that I have met over my career who really loves horror. And I, I can't say that they're a type, but I know them when I see them. It's like, I I think that horror is some kind of a, um, it's a medicine for some kinds of people. And I do think it makes them feel. Like they belong. It's like a, it's a. Like, it's like a club. It's like a club. It's a club. It's a, it's a club, but it's also kind of a, um, it's a defiance of mortality. Like, like I'm, I, I'm, I'm vulnerable. I'm weak. We're just people. We just have skin protecting us. But there's something about watching horror that makes me feel a little bit either okay in my weakness or like somehow buffered against, you know. I've never heard that. That's awesome. I mean, I kind of feel like. I'm in that club, I think. I'm in that club too. Like I'm so weak. I'm like such a little nothing that when I see somebody getting, you know, (laughs) mutilated and devoured, it just kind of reinforces that feeling. And then I'm like, but I'm still here. Like, it's okay. I love that your husband did. It's beautiful. You, the way you said it, it's just, uh, I, I, feel, I feel the same way. I, I don't know what it is. I have a horror group. We watch horror movies every Tuesday night. It's me and the guys, and um, we dissect them, and we always feel like there's not many good horror movies anymore, and we go through so much shit where the boys always leave every night going, well, there's always next week, <clears throat> and Rotten Tomatoes says 95% and they're pieces of shit. So I don't know what that's about. <clears throat> and we always gravitate towards going back and watch a Return of the Living Dead or a Jaws <laughs> or a Nightmare on Elm Street right. or the ones that just stand the test of time. And um, they just don't make them like they used to. And they're just like, you know, I thought, I feel like in the 80s, 70s and 80s, these movies were well thought out. Like, this is a good story. These are good characters. Now it's sort of, ha- let's do... Uh, it just seems like it's it's we don't care about character. We don't care if you like people. We're just gonna. And the the best thing about Nightmare on Elm Street is you like these people. You're with Nancy. You, you like, like her. If you don't like you, movie doesn't work. So true. I think. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know if the. I think the movies are being made a lot quicker than they used to be made. Exactly. So that even the actors don't even know each other that well. I mean, I'm, I've even been on sets where you don't even know the person. They just come that day and do their part and they leave and you've never even even had a cup of coffee with them, you know. So how are you going to have any kind of relationship on screen? But also, I think people don't want to spend so much time like developing the character. So even in the, the latest Halloween, which I really liked, actually, they really spent a long time to 
to get us to know like these new people in the story, the love story in the beginning and and um and a lot of people complained about it. It's like, God dang it, you know, they're spending too much time. We didn't don't care about those people, you yeah. know. So <laughs> I think they're gonna die anyway, you know. I mean, it's kind of like people are just setting up little people to get killed. And they and there's almost like a video game quality to it. Like how many of these folks are gonna die by the end of it and the kill count and everything. Whereas I mean, a scary story actually really tries to get into your brain about what we're really afraid of in the world. Yeah, and I, I just don't think they do that. I don't think they're, nothing's scary anymore. There's very few movies or are scary. Or everything is scary. You know, God, I mean, I was just talking to my daughter. She's really scared about her kid going to a school. Okay, that's scary. Like, that's really scary. Yeah, and so make a movie about that. Yeah, I mean, figure it out because nobody <laughs> figure it out. But nobody real wants situations. nobody wants to be reminded that their real life is scary because yeah. then everyone's really scared all the time. Like when remember that that game War, uh, the movie War Games came oh, out. I loved War Games. Like, yeah, we love that movie because we were all really Do worried you want to play a game. We were so worried about nuclear annihilation, thermonuclear, what is it? <laughs> thermonuclear oh, war. Yeah, but. Now it doesn't seem like they want to actually talk about what we're really scared of. Um, yeah, I can't believe your husband proposed to you on the set of Pet Cemetery. <laughs> yeah. What the? Fuck? Well, it wasn't on the set. We went away <laughs> for the weekend to the beautiful Acadia National Park. Okay, so it wasn't Maine. on the set of Pet no, Cemetery. No, no, not. Yeah, Fred Gwynn no, there going. Well, no, my husband's married. so romantic. He he had you know bought he bought a ring you know and. He was looking for a time and a place. And so we went away for the weekend up to the national park. And we never actually, he wanted to like propose to me at sunrise, which is the first place that the sun rises in America is at Acadia National Park, Cadillac Mountain. What? It's the easternmost park in America. Didn't know that. And um, so he had this huge plan, but like all plans. (laughs) Well, it didn't come to fruition because he just couldn't bear to wait that long. So he actually proposed to me like f- four hours after we'd left, you know, Ellsworth, Maine. And uh, that's where they, they shot Pet Cemeteries in Ellsworth, which. Did you, by the way, I know I'm jumping around, but I'm thinking of Mike Flanagan and Midnight Club, and which is available on Netflix. Did you, how many times did you audition for that? Or he just offered you the part? He just offered me the part. See? <sighs> I mean, that really picked me up out of a really, I mean, there's this, yeah, I wasn't in a funk, but I just didn't think anything like that was going to happen. So you just got a call one day or your agent said, hey, Mike Flanagan wants to talk to you? Well, yeah, my manager called and said, uh, there's a casting director, casting director up here in Vancouver who's contacted me. Um, Mike Flanagan has a new show and they, they would like to have you read this part. And uh, I said, great, you know, send it over. I'm thinking it's like a one episode thing and really excited about it. But then I got the sides and the opening speech of this character. It was like one speech and you kind of get to know Dr. Georgina Stanton. Basically, um, her son has died of cancer and she's opened up a hospice for kids with cancer who are terminal. And this is like, it was just her opening speech where she's welcoming a new patient into this hospice. And I, um, I get the, I'm in, I'm like literally on the 101 freeway getting off at Las Virginas Canyon Road. And I decided to pull into 
the gas station just to read the sides because I had to do the audition the next morning on my iPhone and I just wanted to like go over it in my head while I'm driving my long little windy road over Malibu Canyon. So I sit there and I'm reading the sides and I just burst into tears like because her story is not my exact story, but I lost my son to brain cancer five years ago. And so this whole this whole idea that she was this woman who'd lost her son and had decided to open a hospice for kids with cancer was something that just really struck a nerve in me. And so after I, you know, cried for several minutes, then I just started like memorizing the lines like, okay, I'm going to just get this in me. And so over my windy road, and then the next morning I had to get up and do an audition and it took me like, I'm so bad at home auditions, but they're terrible. I just set up my lights and, And, uh, you know, get my phone and it's like, I'm trying to figure it out. And I do, I probably do 40 t- takes. 40 I t- takes. I, I went from like 8.30 in the morning when I started. And then my manager's calling me at like 3.30, like, where is it? It needs to be in. Like, they want it by five. And I'm like, it's coming. I'm, it's almost ready. I almost have a good one. Because it was such a long Mike Flanagan speech. Oh my and gosh. I didn't want to make any mistakes. I've talked about these Flanagan speeches with other actors that have worked with him. They're they're, they're not long. easy. They do one, he likes one or two takes. Yeah. Oh, and it's just pushing in on you. And we're yeah. not cutting away. So it was um really nerve-wracking. I didn't know that about Mike when I had the monologue. I just thought, oh, they've chosen a monologue for the audition. And when they do that, there's just really no way to make a mistake. And you have like 20 beats, you know, you're trying to get out in this monologue. And if you miss one, and I'm like, nope, got to do it again. And so sit, like 40 takes and you got the one that you said. This finally, is I just like, this one's it. It was like 3.15 and, you know, you upload it, you get it there. And then the next day they're like, great, they loved it. Okay, you know, they're going to give you a contract tonight. And, and then I saw that it was for the series, you know, seven episodes. Were you, you just know? jumping around the house screaming? I was jumping around the house screaming. And I could not believe it. I couldn't believe that my life had taken such a wonderful turn, you know, because I had been kind of in like this funk, like, what am I going to do with myself? And um, well, someone still sees it. You know, I I mean, someone still sees it. Someone who's a great he's brilliant. I will say Mike is brilliant. And a lot of people will agree. And for him to say, yep, I, I see her and then her read you know you still got it. I hope, I mean, I yeah, really, obviously. I worked, I worked so hard on that show because there were lots of monologues and I am, you know, of a certain age where memorizing is not as easy as it was when I was 20. So my, um, my daughter who lived in Vancouver at the time, I, I had her come over. I hired her every day to go over my lines and we went, you know, I would work really, really hard on them so that when I got to the set that day, I knew I would do it on the first take. I would never, I would never expect them to have to do a second take for me. And so I, I really wanted to bring that and, you know, working with such young actors too, I just wanted to set a really good example. How long would it take you to learn a monologue? I would take, you know, it would take like two, three full days, you know, of actually getting it down pat without any mistakes did it drive were you nervous while you're doing it you're trying to yeah i'm like, nervous I'm, I'm, you could already imagine yourself messing yeah. up on set you know totally. that feeling we get i just yeah like, you just, oh this is gonna happen on set i'm gonna be the laughing stock <laughs> that's, that's what goes on in our heads <laughs> but i mean it's mike flanagan you know too so it's not just any any joe schmo director you know and he's 
you know, so important to our genre. And, and I know that the way they work, they have to work so quickly. And it's in the pandemic. So they're, they have to even work more quickly and efficiently because they have all this protocols for, you know, no one can be together and everyone's shifting places all the time. You're not able to hang and you can't. So it was just a totally different experience and being in the pandemic with masks and shields and how you can't eat together. You can't, it's very lonely. It was really lonely. Yeah. Yeah. It was super lonely. Yeah. I I was on set like earlier this year on something or uh, late last year and you know that the protocols and 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 it just it's just not as fun. It's not as fun. It's not like what I always love doing. And, and you can't on. like go over and like, you know, kid with the focus puller and like rib him for you know screwing up the last take. You know, you can't develop that rapport. You can't do much with anymore. the crew. <laughs> and that we would just be. I mean, there were always oh who's oh don't worry about it. It's um, probably delivery or something. Um. I've always enjoyed the relationships that I had with crew members, no matter you know what department, all departments, and um, you know you always walk away with meeting great folks, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. and that was the hardest part is not having those like opportunity to meet those folks and get to know them really well. But I love that you got the opportunity and you were able to shine, you know. I know. I, some, I, I, I mean, worked my I worked really, really hard. And Mike, you know, we didn't know how the show, the arcs of the show, and he would come in. He only directed the first two and then he was off working on Fall of the House of Usher. Right. So unfortunately we didn't get to hang with Mike as much as I had hoped um after make the first couple of months. But I did get to um, get to know him I think really well and uh I just really admire I admire everything about how he's approached his career and and what he does. He knows what his strengths are and and he and you know he just does that. You know, you brought up like you got the part it just was meant to be. It was a, a woman who lost their child and it was something you connected to and you were like I have to have this and you just, nobody knew this role better than you. Yeah. I mean, and Mike just... didn't even know that I'd had that experience. So oh that's what was really when I finally got to meet him face to face I said you know, you know, my son Atticus died of brain cancer five years ago, and he just was like, what? You know, and I said, yeah, that's why this is so weird that we're sitting here face to face, is that there's something else, like, I really feel made this part so special for me. How do you, I mean, look, people deal with loss, and, and you you know, all, my father lost my sister, and my half-sister passed away, like, two years ago, and I've never heard him cry, and to hear that was just devastating, like, whoa and you always hear that losing your child is the worst thing possibly that you can imagine and um i mean how do you how do you deal with it how do you deal with it how do you deal with it now how did you deal with it then yeah i i I don't even know how i did i mean i just i just knew that my, my my son had this incredibly charmed life he had so many friends and you know he was so smart he went to stanford he you know worked really hard and he he had the whole world in front of him literally and then this devastating news that he has brain cancer and so it was about 7 years before the diagnosis until he passed away and you know he never told anybody that he was sick he never let anybody know that he had this you know this devastating diagnosis and just watching him like 
rally and just be there for everybody and all of his friends be there for him. I kind of felt like I have to I have to follow his lead in terms of like just acknowledging that these these really horrible things just happen and and we can't say poor me. We just can't. We just have to say you know, we're here. We got to take all the advantage of it while we're here and then when we're not here, we have to know that we've lived the very best life that we could live. So what I always remind myself of is is that we don't even know what comes next, right? Like it could be the minute that you die, you're just right there with all the people that, you know, have passed before you. It could be I that. I hope so. You know, and so I, I comfort myself with that idea. And then, you know, the sadness when it comes in and comes out, you just let it wash. You just let yourself be washed by it and and then you come out of it. And it's a process. Like it happens, you know, probably once a day. I mean, it's not. You break down you know, frequently. I I used to, but now I just, you know, I have like certain little habits that I do. I have little pictures that I look at, or I have I have a little shrine that I address and talk out loud. All of those things help. Just you realize that they're here. You know, I just really feel like he is with me all the time, and as as. If I feel like I'm going to believe that, then it is true because belief and truth are, you know, very closely related. And talking about them. And talking about them. You know, them a lot. not just yeah. like that's the elephant. And, yeah, in the room. and I, I would tell not... anybody who, like, yeah, who knows somebody who's lost somebody dear, it's like the more that that person can tell you a great story about them or, oh, remember that time when we all did this? Like, that is like so refreshing. And um, the people in my life who really didn't, were painful to be around were the people who just didn't want to go there and like they always like avoided the topic and all I you know I would eventually avoid them because I like people who can just say oh remember when we all went on that picnic or well you know he was such a good guitar player remember when he did that you know song for everybody because you want to hear it don't you you want to like that's all you've got is the memories so it's all we have right and like I found a picture I went through some, my dad actually also passed away last month and oh. I, I've, I've been going through a lot of his photos, but you know, you'll find one that you've never seen before and you're like, oh, thank goodness I found this because it just brings back this other entire like piece of the pie of memories that might be by be gone. And I'm constantly just trying to reconstitute memories like, okay, we went to Hawaii. Okay. That was so much fun. And we went to see that waterfall okay remember we got lost and then you know we got all muddy and then it started raining and um you know you're just constantly trying to reconstitute these really important memories and that also helps kind of bolster your sense of security that you know you had this life you had it it was wonderful and we don't all get to have dessert you know all year long you just sometimes get it once it's such a honestly like a, a beautiful perspective that i don't think a lot of people have that um or can deal with i think you know it's i think a lot of it has to do with like maturity and a certain like i don't know what it is that you have that you have this innate sort of i don't know, understanding or sort of just like I, I, what I'm trying to say is I couldn't handle <laughs> i couldn't handle yeah. i don't like you, you I, could though probably but, but like i'm just saying like and not, I'm not saying you could handle it. I'm saying that, like, I don't know. Like, 
I imagine if something happened, I would just fall apart. You, I guess that that's how you probably felt. You probably thought you were going to just fall apart. I mean, I I think and I mean I, I don't know what philosopher said this, but there's like the dead don't know they're dead, and the living, you know, you just have to manage without that person. That's your that's you. You have to figure that out. For Why yourself. should you suffer more than you have to? Because that person wouldn't want you wouldn't to want suffer. Wouldn't want you to suffer exactly. And so you just have to figure out a new life where that person's not going to be there every day, but they really are there more than they were before. Because you think about, say your brother, like, did you really think about him today? Or did you think about him yesterday? Maybe not. But if he was gone, you would be thinking about him every day. You're right. And and so in some ways, they're more present in your life being dead than they are sometimes being alive. And that's something that we think we all need to really contemplate is maybe I should think about these living people a little bit more, you know, because know. I'm thinking about the dead ones almost every day, you know, and maybe I'm misplacing my ability to focus. And so I have like been much more reaching out to the people that I do care about. I do want to make them more of my present life because now I know, well, once they're gone, I, I can't do that. And we all do it. It's the story that's told over and over. Is like, ah, I wish I would have. I wish I would have oh, more I know, time with him. I know it's the him. worst. It's so sad. And it's like I'm sitting here going, I could easily do this more. I could easily, right. you know, oh, but I have this. I can't. I don't have time to make the time. Just yeah. fucking make the time. Yeah. And um, or and don't. I mean, if you don't really want to be around that person, <laughs> that's don't. also true. Like, don't. That's <laughs> also like be judicious and you know, like there's a, you don't need to be like great friends with millions of people. You know, mm -hmm. there's just a few people that it it really counts. They're there for you. Do you still keep in touch, by the way, with people from Nightmare on Elm Street or any of the movies that you worked on? Well, yeah, Amanda Wiss is really one of my best friends, and um, she and I, in fact, we're going to have lunch next week, so we keep really close contact and then um robert england of course i see him a lot at shows i did a movie with him yeah yeah he's great. so he's you know he, he's it makes me sad to see all of us getting so much older because i in my mind i don't feel like i'm getting older but when we're all together we we really like talk about it a lot like can you believe 40 years has gone by you know it's like so much time but yeah. so robert is a is a, i consider him a dear friend and his wife nancy ironically wow. nancy and then um i see uh jesus garcia um once in a while but when we see like ira hyden from nightmare three like we are in in touch a lot right so tuesday night i mean she's a good friend so lisa wilcox is a good friend this group of nightmare actors we've been lucky that we've been thrown together a lot going around the country to these conventions yeah. and so our friendships have really blossomed like toy newkirk i mean all these people like i feel like are you know important friends and and i could call them for anything everybody's always said like i asked around of course and they all said she's so nice she's such a good person you know heather Honestly, i feel like is that a curse well, no, it's nice to be around people that are like good. Like you hear a lot of asshole stories. By the way, was Johnny Depp a nice guy back then? Such a nice guy. He was. I'm sure he's a nice guy Did now. Did you think too. he was going to be a big movie star? Honestly, no way. I didn't. I mean, because I didn't tell if I could not tell if he liked acting or not because he seemed kind of tortured by it. <laughs> really? The, the pressure of 
I know that he really worked hard to be, you know, Glenn, and he yeah. worked very hard on his part. And so I couldn't tell if he was enjoying himself, frankly. I mean, because he was always so dedicated. You know, very dedicated and serious, and you know, but you know, we all joked around and cracked smiles and stuff. But he was a musician. He was a guitar player. I knew he was in a band. I thought, oh, he's just going to go back to that because to sit, you know, in a band behind a guitar and play music is to me seems so thrilling and like such a great thing to do to yeah. be able to play an instrument like that. I thought, oh, he'll give this up. This won't this won't keep him satisfied or fulfilled. If you're a great musician, you're not gonna turn it all in for acting, you know. Yeah. Were you attracted to him? Were you like, ooh, he's cute. He was I really like cute. Him. You know, he was married when he did Night Run Down Street. Yeah. He was married. How old was he? He was like nineteen. He had a wife. Oh my and, gosh. And I had a really serious boyfriend I mean, he was gorgeous. He was gorgeous. Yeah. Right? Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah. Wasn't a bad angle. There weren't. Not a bad angle. And <laughs> and yet, he just didn't have that ego at all. So you didn't really, he didn't, you know, he didn't draw, draw your attention to him that him, himself that way. Whereas, you know, I had seen other actors, like I'd been around Matt Dillon and I'd been around, um, you know, some of those Brat Pack guys, mm -hmm. and they all had this, Bravado. look at me, I'm yeah. so hot. You know, they had yeah. they had that confidence because they'd all become incredibly successful by then. And Johnny didn't have that. He was still like kind of yeah. finding his place and, you know, unsure of himself. So to me, that was way more attractive, of course, because he didn't have that crazy ego that I think Hollywood made some pretty strong egomaniacs back then too uh, i would say so who do who do you get starstruck who who were you starstruck when you met them in your career the oh, one, the one, anybody i that, mean all of them i am so starstruck by you and everybody else out there get out of here. i am that's my that's my whole like oklahoma upbringing thing I'm me just too so, I, i'm so starstruck by people that my husband laughs at me because he <laughs> You he know, works with everybody. Russell Crowe, Eddie yeah. Murphy, you know, Steve Carell, like everyone he is working mm -hmm. and he's their makeup artist. He's working on their face. He's right there with them and they're Jack Lemon. Like they become buddies, you know? And um I, I mean, he'll say, Do you want to come to the set today? And I'm like, I'll just make a fool of myself. No. You know, and I you know, super starstruck by Eddie Murphy and Russell Crowe. Everybody. I just I just feel like they're so And you're just you just stand there and go, Hi. And they come, Hi. You know, and then I go, I'm going to go get some coffee. And then I leave immediately. Like, I just don't want to. Have you ever asked for an autograph? Um, only from William Hurt. I asked him for an autograph. Really? Yeah, because I, I, I really loved his acting. I always, um, you know, I just really admired him. For some reason, I guess it was like the big chill or something. That movie really affected me. Mm -hmm. And I had a chance to see him. And so um, my friend will actually... Um, Joanne Willette and I were on the, the TV series, Just the Ten of Us, and we saw that William Hurt was like in the next dressing room, like over there. And so we like, let's go get his autograph. So we wrote him a note, wrote him a letter, like we were on the set next to his and we would love to know if we could, um, you know, get an autograph. And so he sent it back with this nice note, like, I'm so busy, you know, I can't really come and meet you, but um, here you go, here's an autograph. And so it was on a tiny little piece of paper. And so we cut it in half, and she has half, and I have half. To this day? <laughs> to this day. Who has the last name? 
I do. I think I have the hurt. Yeah, yeah, she has <laughs> I've William. I've got the hurt. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a long note. It wasn't just like an autograph. It was like, you are so kind to, you know, want to meet me, and I'm just so busy over here. Of course, he was lying, I'm sure, but... Um, Two, two little girls on like a, a little sitcom want to go meet, you know, the great William Hurt. Oh, my gosh. I but. love that. I love that you did that. All right. This is called Shit Talking with Heather Lane Camp. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, shit it's talking. just like these are these are these are, <laughs> like, you know, you're shit talking. You're okay. just throwing out any questions. These okay, are from it. my lovable patrons. Patreon.com slash inside of you. Thank oh, you. Oh, yay. Supporting the podcast. Patreon. Okay. It's patron. Uh, so this could be rapid fire. Okay. Michelle K, did you have any Freddy nightmares or was working on set not scary? Had so many Freddy nightmares. The first ones were like his knives actually would cut into my face like when we were working together. Then later in Nightmare 3, I had this nightmare that we were on this ship and Freddy is like in control of it. And oh no, Chuck Russell's in control of the ship. And all of us actors are like almost going overboard and I have to like rescue Patricia Arquette from this ship capsizing. There's a lot of wow. symbols, a lot of symbolism in that dream. That's crazy. Um, Jammin' Jenny met you at a horror convention with the rest of the Elm Street OGs and you were really nice. What's the weirdest thing a fan has asked you to do? <laughs> There's so many <laughs> examples of that. <laughs> but, you know, when... Um, I mean, I think like signing machetes and things like that. I think that's weird. But you do it, or I do or, it. The, uh, uh, or the or the knives. The knives the are okay because they're Freddy. But yeah. you know, the machete <clears throat> it doesn't have anything to do with Freddy, right? It just yeah. It I sign guys, people's, you know, signing someone's body for a tattoo is kind of weird. It's I don't weird. like. I've I don't like that doing too. that. I don't S- like sign doing your it. signature or sign this quote. I'm like, yeah. Do you really want to do that to yourself? I wouldn't. I don't. And not with me. Not with not, my name. That's what I keep saying. Raj, did you have? Uh, do you have family or friends that question your decision to pursue an acting career? If so, how did how did you work through that? Well, like we talked yeah, a little we earlier, talked like that. my dad just wasn't that excited about it, <laughs> and uh, my mom wasn't either. But you know what? I just. I just kept doing it. You know, that's because you loved it. I just I never made excuses. I just said, this is what I've chosen to do. And I'm sorry that it, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm sorry. You Were know? they proud of you, though? Um, yes, they are very proud of me. And the, my dad, before he died, because he was too old to kind of watch it on Netflix. He doesn't even know how to use the TV practically. So right. he went to some party and he said that he's like, I was really surprised. People came up to me and told me, like, what a good actress you were. After and all these years. After all these years, I'm like, thanks, Dad. You thanks, know? Dad. Take whatever you can get. That's what I suggest is just, you know, whatever morsels of encouragement you can get, take them. Believe me. But don't expect a lot. Believe me. <laughs> um, yeah, to hear anything from my dad, uh, yeah. It just doesn't happen. Kelly asks, which movie out of Elm Street series did you love filming the most? Well, probably the first one, right? I think I loved filming... I loved filming New Nightmare because I knew what other film sets were like. Nightmare was my first film set. So I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it because I was kind of scared like the whole time. Was I doing everything right? You know, I was really worried. Whereas New Nightmare, everything was like three or four notches above the level what we did um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Everything was more luxurious. Everything was a little better. And it was fun. Favorite Freddie quote, by the way. Or favorite Nancy quote. Oh, I mean, welcome to time. Welcome, welcome to, to prime, prime time, time bitch. bitch. Is the best Freddie line of that all. Is. I also like that moment with Nan- with uh, Tina where he goes, 
Tina. Yeah. And she goes, oh, God, this is God. That's so good that you, that that's, sounds just like him. I worked like with him. him. I would always do that. No, He's like, shut up. That please, one is up. the most, I think, like. <clears throat> Iconic. Iconic in terms on a philosophical level, like especially where Freddie's gone in our culture. Mm-hmm. That one to me is the best quote. But um, I also like the souls of the children make me stronger. Yeah. Or make me strong. I don't know if it's. That was Dream Warriors. That was Dream Warriors. Um, yeah. And he pulls up his shirt and he has like all the little screaming oh, faces man. on his. You know, obviously Wes passed away. Were you guys close? Did you talk to him in the final years or any kind of conversations or not really? You know, I didn't talk to him in the final year of his life. And I think he had, um, you know, he he too had brain cancer. And I, I do think that he probably deteriorated to a point where his family protected him from sure. too many relationships. It's just too exhausting. But um, we would exchange a lot of emails. And so when he died, we would talk once a year probably um, but we always exchanged emails if he was there I, and I'd say, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing? I heard you, you know, fell off your bike or, you know, whatever. God. You know? Well, he's, so, know? he's <laughs> so subtle. And I, I remember on set, like him going, <clears throat> you know, we're talking about horror movies and I'm like, Amity Vahari goes, well, you know, that's not real. And I go, yes, it is. He goes, no, it was a, it was a whole, just, it was made up. I'm like, no, no, it was not made up, Wes. And we're taught in the rolling camera. I'm like, you can't say this to me before rolling. <clears throat> Amity Vahar goes, yeah, they did, they made it all up. I go, no, there's a ghost. They took pictures. No, we, anyway, he was so funny, and he would always say. He was so, he was so like, wry. I mean, he was like. Oh, yeah. And he would have me, like, it was the second time they were filming this movie. So you could tell Christina Ricci, she was nice, but she would she didn't want to be there. Nobody wanted to be there. I wanted to be there. And I was bummed that no one else wanted to be there. Right. And, you know, I had a small part. It was, I just want to work with Wes. But each take, he'd go, uh. Do it like Christopher Walken. Do it like John Malkovich. Do it like uh, Jack Nicholson. Do it like the guy from Silence. And I went to, I, I told this story, but I went to the uh, the uh, the premiere for the movie, Cursed, and or no, not the premiere, the cast and crew, and they were showing bloopers, and, and it was all me. And then there were people like, who the fuck are you? I go, I just, I came in for like three days, and I'm like in all the bloopers, and I was like, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I'm like, but it was cool. He um, knew it was going to go on the blooper reel. He was just doing it for that. Jesus. Um, by the way, we're almost done. This is, are you, you good? I'm good. This has been great. Um, by the way, I, I just want to know in my uh, hypochondriac mind, um, I'm thinking like, I just want to know, be educated. Like, what are signs of like, are there signs of like brain cancers or like, is there, are there certain symptoms that all of a sudden you go, oh, I have a bad headache and yeah. you go into a doctor. Is, is that bad, what it is? I think a bad headache. I mean, a lot of people have a seizure, a, like a, a big seizure. And that's the, your brain's like firing all electricity, like very angry that this thing is in there. And so a, a seizure will sometimes be the one clue that people have and they go in and get a brain scan also you know if you um like suddenly your language skills like kind of take a dive or you start falling like there's a lot of different ways that you can um like your balance starts to get you know off balance but headaches too i guess but it was um yeah i think there's a million different ways unfortunately really (laughs) yeah but i mean headaches are probably one of the probably a big indicator but yeah a, a lot of people don't know you know all over your body you just don't know what you have you know that's the trouble we're not going and getting cat scans and mris as a routine so 
you just don't know. That's what's so scary. Well, they have that. I, mm. They have that Pranuvo thing that I did, which is a full body scan. Oh yeah, and I want to do that. They, do it, Pranuvo. Um, use Pranuvo Michael or something. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. I didn't get any money for this, but I just I did it, and they they detected something in my throat and my larynx that was a um, it was in the moderate risk but they wanted me to get more imaging. So I went to my ENT and he looked at it and he goes, let's get more imaging. And I got more imaging and finally it came back and I was, I was okay. Oh, thank goodness. But I was, I mean, it was- But that was because of you got the body scan. But that was the body scan. At least I, I had to know and I, I- Did that, they give you a dye that you drink uh, or something? They gave before? me a dye, not in the Pranuvo scan. That okay. just detects uh, first stage cancers, everything, but I think leukemia. But then when I did extra imaging, they wanted to do the dye. Mm -hmm. So they put the dye in to just kind of- I mean, I think as the way medicine is going, I mean, it just seems like these these tests are going to be more and more available. But I mean, do you want to know? Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It opens the floodgates for other things. Well, there's a minor risk in this, and then there's this. And then, and then you become obsessed with it, and then you're not living- you know, very well. But I'm not, I'm not obsessed. I was just worried about that. I wanted to get it looked at and it was fine. I forgot about all the minor things. But that's why your voice is so beautiful. Oh yeah. It's probably Do that I have thing. A good voice? It's probably that thing in your throat. Why don't I get more <laughs> that cyst? He's got <laughs> such a cystic throat. Oh, the way he talks. I should be doing more voiceover work. Yeah, no, you have a gorgeous voice. Really? Yeah. Mm. Thanks. Yeah. A gorgeous voice. I mean, in these cans, they found sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> in these cans. Um, anything going on? Anything next? Well, you know, our show got canceled. It was really sad. Ugh, and bastards. so um, I I just did a little part for a friend and um, Mark DePaula. He has a film called Stab at Heaven that I got to play the mother of a, of a girl who's wrestling with her. Her boyfriend has... Or her fiance has committed suicide, and so it's kind of a not an uplifting movie. It's very, very philosophical and contemplative. But he's a he's kind of a world class photographer, and he's taken his directorial ambitions into Ooh. filmmaking. So, so the it's going to look good. It looks so great, and um, but I was really nervous about it. You know, again, you just don't feel sometimes you just don't feel confident, and um, that's acting. You sometimes that's acting, it's on, you know? sometimes it's not quite there, and so, sometimes you got to fake it. Yeah, somebody got to fake it. So, but I, yeah, that was really fun to do. But I'm looking for work and um, I'm looking everywhere. But also too, I just, I feel like there's something about it. I just feel like I'm in this waiting mode for some reason. I don't know why, but I feel like I'm waiting and I'm anticipating something to happen. But like I said, like I just need to pick up the phone more, I think. Well, you know, I mean, you just did a whole season of a, <clears throat> a show it didn't get picked up for a second season, but everybody knew about it. Netflix, Mike Flanagan, he loves you. Yeah. You just did that. It's not yeah. like you, oh, like oh, it's been six years. I know. You well, know what I mean? It was like that before. So I want to, sure. I want to like not let this. This is a thing I don't want to let just die on the vine. I I want to see this, you know, create more opportunities, and that's it will. that's kind of where I'm sitting right now, thinking, what opportunities do I want? Because I do think you can ask for the opportunities you want. Absolutely. You don't want the ones you don't want. And there's nothing wrong with making some calls. There's nothing wrong with sending <laughs> some emails. There's nothing wrong with that kind right. of stuff. There's right. nothing wrong with working with a first time director if you like, you know, he's got right. passion or whatever. Right. So, um, yeah, this has been a real treat. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really loved it. I really, I mean, I, I've had Flanagan and um, I've had uh, Robert England and, um, you know, 
Yeah, this is this has been fantastic. The last thing I'm going to do is afterwards I'm going to ask you to sign that. If I can get okay. the poster out, I might not be able to get the poster. Yeah, out. you might not. Well, it looks like you can. It's like it doesn't look like it's it's, it's hard cheap. To get out. Say it, it's, just say it. It's I cheap. Having to say it's a cheap frame. It's a cheap frame. <laughs> it's uh, most of my frame. The Lost Boys is the worst, but it's the only frame I could find that would fit there. Yeah, but you know, like the, all the posters are different sizes. Like they yeah, they're not standardized. Yeah, I don't yeah. know who made that up. Do you have like, an original uh, Nightmare on Elm Street poster? Nope. I bought it at allposters.com. <laughs> They're not paying me to say that either. <laughs> That's an original. By the way, don't is look. It? But what does he mean original? Like Original it... poster from like- the, In 1984. Yes. From the movie theater or How whatever. do you know? Because you know. there's you there's way, Yeah, there's ways of looking at it. There's things that you could do I think that it's poster. all- oh. I know. I know. You know how many people bring me gloves and say this one was an original that was worn in Nightmare Oh, Fun. great. And then I'm like- I'm so I have happy one downstairs. I have one I'm downstairs. I'm so happy for you. Of course, I would never say like, yeah, right. Oh, good one. Yeah, <laughs> original, huh? Yeah. So many people. Gosh. Do you know? Do you know the tagline? Don't look. Um, if Nancy doesn't wake up. If Nancy doesn't wake up, no, I forget what. If Nancy doesn't wake up screaming, <laughs> screaming, she, she won't, won't wake, wake up at all. At all. That I mean, you look at that. I mean, you. I it's know. So it's dope. such a great, great, great poster. Well, that poster artist, you know, did all the nightmare posters. Yep. And uh, Matthew, it, oh, what's his last name? But he just uh, one of the poster companies just released that poster in a much more art house kind of, you know, way. And um, it's beautiful, but it doesn't even capture the colors that are on that poster, no. which are the old so... school posters were just amazing. Yeah. They always, yeah. And uh, they, I mean, they worked hard to get all the themes, all the feelings of the movie, you know, they were. That is hard. Yeah. This guy's the... a genius. Yeah. He's a, he's a genius. He's a genius. And he's a very nice guy too. Um, anyway, I thank you for having me. Thank you. And, this has been um, a joy. A yeah, joy. Next time at the karaoke bar, what will we sing? Endless Love. Ooh, I love that song. What, what about Ain't No Mountain High Enough? Ain't No Mountain High. I think after the first time we sing, we're like, why are we doing ah! this? It's one of those. We're like, oh boy. That that range is way out of That's our range. That's kind of like. Yeah. Um, what other good duets are there from the 80s? There's Islands like, in um, the Stream. Islands in the Stream. Oh, what was the one? Oh. But no, what's when the time of my life? Will I have <laughs> the time of my life? See, he's so much better at singing. I than never <laughs> feel like this before. Never felt so I swear. Is it see? <laughs> All right, we've lost an audience. Thanks, All Heather. Right. You're great, awesome. Great, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> Man. I'll tell you, I wish I was as easygoing and could just handle things like she did. I mean, dealing with loss, dealing with just uh, facing adversity and just keeps going and working hard and is a wonderful human being at the same time. Hasn't gotten nasty. She's not nasty. You know, people can get nasty. And uh, I think she's been through it and um, she knows who she is. And it was a pleasure having you on the podcast, Heather. Thank you. Sorry it took so long to air it, but it's here. Um, hey, just a big shout out again. The live podcast inside of you with Michael Rosenbaum live podcast is October 11th at the Regent Theater downtown. Tickets are available. Go to Instagram, my Instagram, at the Michael Rosenbaum, the link tree, Cameo, the live podcast. You can get tickets. They're still for sale. Still for sale. Zach Levi is the guest um, and all that stuff. So thanks for listening. I appreciate it. 
And uh, I think without further ado, we need to get into the top tiers. What do you think, Ryan? I think that's a great idea. All right. We're going to read them. I'm going to read them. I'm going to do bad impressions of people I've never done impressions. Good. And you have to guess who the impression is and then do it. Fair enough. Nancy D, Lydia and Kristen, Little Lisa, Yukiko, Jill E, Brian H. Is this a Christian Bale I, character? I kind of. That's what I was going for. Nico P, Robert B, Jason W, Sophie M, Raj C. Was it the prestige? Is that what that? Maybe. I don't know. He always talks like this. Now you have to go. You have to read it like that. Oh, like uh, what? Joshua D. Joshua D. Jennifer N. Yep. Stacy L. Jamal F. Janelle B. Ashley Ryan. Mike E. El Dan Supremo. El Dan Supremo. 99 more. San Diego M. Z W L N B. David H. I don't know who this is. Nobody. You said Sheila G. I said Sheila G. Oh, it wasn't great, oh. but I did. I tried Sheila G. Yeah. Brad D. Ray H. Tabitha T. Tom N. Talia M. Betsy D. Angel M. Rhiannon C, Corey K, Dev Nixon, Michelle A, Jeremy C. Yours is better, Michael Caine. I can't do it. Michael Caine. A, a ruby the size of a tangerine. That's really good. Yeah. All right. You said Jeremy <laughs> C? Jeremy C. All right. Um, well, Brandy D, Joni M, Joni B, um, Joey M, Joni B, Eugene and Leah, Corey. Angela F. I can't do this one, but that's a very good Morgan Freeman. You can keep doing it. Mel S. Christine S. Eric H. Shane R. Andrew M. Amanda R. Jen B. Kevin E. Stephanie K. I remember the first day when Andy came to Shawshank. Jarrell, Jam and J, Leanne J, Luna R, Mike <laughs> F, Stone H, Kayla, Stay Wild, Moonchild, Brian L, Kendall L, Kara C, Jessica B, Kyle F, Marisol P, Kaylee J, Brian A, Ashley F, Marion Louise L, Romeo B, Veronica Q, Frank B, Jen T, Nikki L, April R, Derek N, J D W, Calm Bomb, Ginger Insomniac, Rachel D, Lorelai L, and Melissa H. Guys, thank you. Um, I love you. Thanks to all my patrons out there. Patreon.com slash inside of you. If you're still here listening from the Hollywood Hills in Hollywood, California, I'm Michael Rosenbaum. I'm Ryan Diaz. All right. A little wave to the camera. We love you guys. Be good to yourself. I'll see you next week. Please come back. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.